know, the story is told, and I might as well use this one, it's an anniversary story. It's um, told of uh, the day that uh, Jim, who was an avid hunter, woke up ready to go and bag the first deer of the season. He walks downstairs to the kitchen to get a cup of coffee, and to his surprise, he finds his wife, Alice, who has been sitting there, now fully dressed in camouflage. Jim can't figure out exactly what's going on. He was born at night, but not last night. And he looks at her and says, uh, hi, honey, what, what are you up to? And she said, you know, Jim, I'm going to go hunting with you today. It's something I've always wanted to do. And since today is our 20th wedding anniversary, I thought it would be a special time for us to go out and go together. Now, this guy is not slow, and he realizes that to say no would be just devastating. He goes, you know what, honey, that's a great idea. And in fact, I've been thinking the same thing for years. And so, sure enough, they go hunting together. And he said, you know, because it's our anniversary and I want to honor you, I'm going to go ahead and set you up in this deer stand. And I'll go out and walk the perimeter all around the stand. And this way, any deer that are in the area, whatever comes by, you get the first shot. And so he goes and he walks away and he laughs, thinking there's no way in the world that this woman's going to be ever, ever hit a deer to save her life. But he goes out and he doesn't get more than a few hundred yards away that he hears, boom! He hears her firing a gun. And he can't figure out what in the world's going on. And he starts running back to where the deer stand is. And he hears what sounds like an argument that his wife's having with somebody. And sure enough, as he gets closer, he hears, you know, this guy yelling, okay, lady, okay, lady, you can have your deer. And he, and, and, and he hears, boom, boom, another couple of shots. And just as he gets into the clearing, he sees this cowboy. He's standing there petrified with his arms up over his head. And the last thing he hears, he goes, lady, I said you can have your deer, but at least let me take my saddle off him first. <laughs> What's the point? The, the point is, <clears throat> is that there is an old saying that goes something like this. A man or a woman convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You know, today in our ongoing study of Dr. Luke's account of the life of Jesus, we come to a passage where this truth is clearly seen as we're introduced to two followers of Christ who have come to some wrong conclusions as a result of the events that had just taken place. They had seen Jesus arrested, they had seen him suffer, they had seen him die on the cross, and, and they saw him buried. And they had come to conclusions based on what they had seen. Throughout Dr. Luke's gospel, we have also seen him focus our attention upon the many miracles of Jesus, specifically as they relate to physical healing. So uh, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 24, where we're going to address yet another human ailment, and that is the ailment of heartburn. And I want to address that ailment with this question, and that is this, do you have heartburn? And if not... Why not? Because there's a good heartburn that we should all have. And we see that in Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13, we read these words. <clears throat> and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and he began traveling with them. 
but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death, crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go further, and they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. You know, in this passage, there are three main truths that emerge. And the first thing that we see is that the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus were confusing, not only to the women who first went to the tomb, as we saw in our last message, who were the last ones to leave, the first ones to arrive, all the events that had taken place. There was a lot of confusion that was going on. Now we see these two disciples as they're walking to Emmaus, which is about seven miles north of Jerusalem. And as they're walking, they too are confused about everything that had gone, gone on that particular, not only the day before, but probably even the events of the entire week. And they were trying to figure out what was happening. <clears throat> and as I went through this, there are several words. When, when I go through, I like to go through and pick out words that stand out. You know, it's a good way to do a Bible study as you're going through a passage. You know, is there a word that jumps out? Is there something that's there, a thought or a concept that, you know, you want to dig into a little bit more? And one of the things that really stood out to me was in verses 14 and 15, and I underlined or circled in my Bible, it says, as they were walking on the road, they were, they were deep in a conversation. They were conversing with each with each other about all the events which had taken place. And it went on to say that not only they were conversing and discussing. 
And one of the things that really stood out to me was that here, was, here were these two people as they were walking, and they were conversing and discussing specifically the events that had taken place. And the center of their conversation, the center of their discussion, was on spiritual things. And I thought, how often, or maybe how unoften, it is in our life that spiritual things are the focal point of our conversation. We have so many things to discuss and converse in our culture. We have our hobbies, we have our children, we have our grandchildren, we have our interests of sorts, we have our careers, we've got education, we've got all these things that if you really stop and think about it, during this past week, how much of your daily conversation, how much of your daily discussion focused or centered on spiritually eternal significant subjects? And compare that to how much the rest of our conversations are about things that really are temporal and in the long run, meaningless. They really don't mean anything. You know, when was the last time that you focused on spiritual conversation? You know, as I was thinking about that, I was so convicted because, you know, in Deuteronomy, you know, the nation of Israel was told, if you go back to chapter 6, that, you know, spiritual conversations were to be part of our daily diet. It says in Deuteronomy 6, Know this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgment, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And notice, you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, that they shall be as frontals on your foreheads. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your your gates. You'll teach them. You'll talk of them. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And I wonder how many of us actually do that. When was the last time you had a conversation that centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ? When was the last time you focused on the attributes of the character of God? When was the last time you thought about or shared with one another new truth that God has revealed to you in the time that you spend alone with God and the Word of God, doing your daily devotions or whatever it is, and just the conversations that would focus on on God and the things of God. When was the last time you talked about, you know, the, 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 uh, the reality of sin and of judgment? The reality of hell for those who reject Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. When was the last time you discussed what we have to look forward to in the promises of God as it relates to, you know, the fact that he goes to prepare a place for us so that where he is, 
one day we shall be. When was the last time you focused on heavenly things? When was the last time you had conversation and discussion? You know, as I thought about that, I began to realize that as you'll see here, that these types of conversations and these types of discussions would lead these two disciples into discovering greater spiritual truth. Because their hearts were open to learn and to understand the things of God. And my challenge to you and to me is that we need to start to shift more of our attention on the things of God and spiritual conversations so that our children and our grandchildren and the people around us uh, will begin to understand and sense that there's a bigger picture than just the trivial things of life. I think of how much time is spent on, you know, my own personal hobbies and a new baseball season started and what's our lineup going to look like and, you know, how's the team look this year and, you know, the conversations that go with that and, you know, how's work going and how's business and, you know, and this and that. And we talk about so many things in life and I'm not saying that we shouldn't discuss any of those things. All I'm asking is the question and challenge you to consider how much of your daily conversation and discussion is focused on the things of God. Because that's what it's all about. And, and the reason that many of us have no hope, and the reason many of us get discouraged on a regular basis, is because he's not the focal point of our discussions and conversation. So, as I read this, I was challenged to consider it I challenge you to consider the same thing. And back to Luke 24, where we learn that such conversations and discussions will lead these two disciples to deeper truths and understanding. Now notice also in verse 15, we're told that it was while such a discussion took place that Jesus met the two and began to travel with them. We're not told how that came about. We're just told that the two were traveling. They were talking about spiritual things. I'm sure they were asking questions. You know, is he really the Christ? Can he be the Messiah? I mean, we, we thought he was the hope of Israel, and yet he died. He was buried. We don't understand what's going on. And you know what? And as we have those types of questions, this is a beautiful picture of how God meets us right where we are. You ask questions that focus on God and spiritual things, and you know what? God is real happy to join in on the conversation. And Jesus met them in the midst of this conversation. And we're not told any other details other than the fact that they were walking, and Jesus approached them, and they began walking together. And I think, wow, isn't that great? That whoever seeks the Lord will not be disappointed. Whoever is seeking truth will find truth. Whoever is searching out the deeper things of life and the mysteries of life, God will reveal that to us. But the reason that it's not revealed to most of us is because we're too busy talking about all, you know, the superficial things of life. We don't seek the deeper truths. We're not looking for more of God and more information and, 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 and for him to reveal more about us. And the fact that these two were struggling and Jesus met them in the midst of their struggles indicates to me that he cares about us and he wants us to have clarity in regards to spiritual truth. God is not a God or author of confusion. 
And if you are confused about spiritual matters, then God says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him come to me, and I will give it to him without any reproach. You got questions for God, then you go to him, and he will answer you. You go to him through his word and the spirit of God, and he will reveal to you the truth that you need to know. You know, another interesting word is found in verse 16, uh, where we're told that these two disciples were prevented, notice in verse 16, they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. wonder why that would be. You know, in Mark's gospel account, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 12, <clears throat> we're told that Jesus appeared to them in a different form. In John 20, verse 14, and John 21, verse 4, we're told that Mary and the disciples did not recognize the risen Savior until he chose to reveal himself to them. And it leads me to the natural question that probably leads to you, and that is this. Why wouldn't Jesus want them to immediately recognize him? And the answer to that question is found in this passage, and it'll change your life when we get to it. Why did Jesus prevent them from recognizing him at first? What was his purpose behind, you know, basically closing their eyes to him? And there's always a reason behind everything that God does. And we're going to take a look at that in a minute, but a few more words to consider before we move to our next point. Look at verse 17. We're told that they stood still and they were looking sad. And he explains in verses 18 through 20 why they were sad. Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem unaware of the things which happened here? Jesus said, What things? And they said, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, prophet, mighty in deed and word and sight of God and the people, how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and they crucified him. He said, You know what? They were sad. They didn't have any reason to be sad, but it just shows that because they were, they were confused, it led to them being sad. And when they go on and say in verse 21, notice, but we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping that he was going to set up his kingdom. We were hoping that he was the one that was going to set us free from Rome. We were hoping that he was going to do for us what we thought he would do. And it says, we were hoping, meaning that, you know what? When they buried Jesus, they buried the hope of these two, as well as the hope of many others. And the reason that they had no hope is because God didn't do for them what they wanted him to do, and they lost hope. And many of us lose hope the same reason, for the same reason. God doesn't do for us what we want him to do, so we lose hope. Wait a minute. There's no reason to lose hope because, you know what, God's plan is still coming to fruition. And everything's going to happen exactly as God said that it would. And the reason that they were sad is that God didn't do for them what they wanted, and we need to learn a lot from this. And to add to this confusion, if you look at verses 22 through 24, it says that these, there were also women who came, and they amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning, they didn't find his body. They said that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it exactly empty as they said. But they didn't see Jesus. And you know what? And the thing was that stood out as the word amazed. They were amazed by what they heard, but they still didn't believe. There are a lot of people who are amazed. They're amazed by fulfilled prophecy. 
They're amazed by, you know, the Christian faith. They're amazed by the number of people who follow Jesus. They're amazed by the changed lives of those who repent of sin and trust in Christ and their lives aren't the same, never the same. And they're amazed by that. They marvel at that. They take it all in. But there's a huge difference between being amazed and marveling and wondering versus believing. And these two disciples were amazed but they hadn't come to the point where they believed. And that's the progression that we're going to see as we go through this passage. They're going to go from being amazed to believing. And Jesus is going to take them through this process to get them to that point. And so when we look at this, that, you know, the same danger exists today that you know, we could be amazed and marvel at what God does, but it still goes back to what I said earlier. The man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You can be amazed all you want, but until your heart is changed, that's all that you'll be. Is just, you'll be amazed at what God is doing, but you still won't put your faith and trust in him. Which leads us to the second truth that emerges, and that's this. Notice the explanation that Jesus gives reveals their real problem. What was the problem of these two disciples? And we see it in verses 25 through 27. He says, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. What was the underlying problem with these two discouraged disciples? Why were they sad? Why did they lose hope? According to Jesus, it was the indifference in their heart to what the Bible said was obvious. And that was the rebuke. Notice what he said. You are slow of heart to believe in what the word of God says. All scripture is inspired by God. And no man ever uttered or wrote down a word unless they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And what Jesus said to them was, you know what, it is the message that must be believed. And it was if this, Jesus was saying to them, how many times do you need for God to tell you before you'll believe what he says? Think about what he said. How many times... Did you need to be told that Jesus must suffer and die and be buried and raise again from the dead? How many times in God's word does he tell you that that's God's plan? How many times did Jesus tell you, folks, I'm going into Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I will be raised again on the third day, and I'll meet you in Galilee, and, you know, and things go on. How many times do you need to be told the same thing before you'll finally believe it? Know what he said? You are slow of heart. You heard it in your head, and I've dealt with people, and you have for years. They have heard the the gospel of Jesus Christ. They could share it with other people. We're all born into the world sinners. There's no one perfect. None of us are righteous. No, not one. All of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Evidence is overwhelming, and they say, you know what? I agree with that. You know, there's something wrong with mankind. All right, good. 
Well, in order to be forgiven by God, you have to acknowledge your sin before God. You have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, and that if you will trust in him, you become a child of God to those who believe in his name. I've heard that too. I understand that. Is it a problem of what's in a person's head? Is it a problem of intellect? Is it a problem of reason? Is it a problem of evidence? Is it a problem of facts? It's not a problem of any of those things. The problem is we're slow of heart. And that's why if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, it's a matter of the will. It's a matter of decision. It's a matter of choice. It's a matter of surrender. It's not a matter of more education. Because the education is there. I'll guarantee you that those in your family or friends or co-workers who have heard the gospel over and over and over and over again, it is not a matter that they need more information. There is just a point in time where they've got to surrender their heart and their will to what they know to be true. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. There is a point of surrender. There is a point of saying, not my will be done, but yours be done. The evidence is overwhelming. I am a sinner. I know that. There's no question about it. Jesus Christ, God's Son, and human flesh died on the cross. The evidence throughout human history, is, it's mind-boggling. The fulfilled prophecies that he fulfilled, what he accomplished on the cross and his resurrection and all those who had come along for centuries trying to disprove the Christian faith by simply disproving that Jesus ever rose from the dead. And many of those who set on that pursuit ended up dropping on their knees and humbly before God saying, my Lord and my God. It's not a question of intellect. It's a question of our hearts. And some of us know how stubborn some of us can be. And it's almost, I was talking to a, a, a friend last week who was choosing to do something that is wrong before God. And to show you one of the schemes or the strategies of the devil is to have us pursue something that is wrong and then add pride on top of it as if it's some noble thing to continue that path because, you know, that's the path I chose. It's like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You chose to leave your wife and your three children to pursue a life of sin. You're miserable, you know what you're doing is wrong, but rather than acknowledge that and to repent and to turn from sin and to turn to God, seek his forgiveness and go back to your wife you're going to continue pursuing that path because, you know what, that's an admirable thing to do? Well, I chose to do that. Well, unchoose to do it because your choice is stupid. <laughs> and that's exactly what I told him. It's like, well, what's so admirable about maintaining a course that's wrong before God? And that's that pride the devil says, you know what, you've you got to be a man of your word. And I'm looking at him, I say, you want to be a man of your word? How about honoring the vows you made to your wife, knucklehead? It's like, you got to be kidding me. There's a man of his word. You're not a man of your word right now by pursuing a life of sin. You're just foolish. Knock it off. And here's the best part about being sick like I am. He goes, uh, well, I haven't really wanted to call and talk to you and bother you because I know everything you're going through. And I said, you know what? 
if the last thing I do this side of eternity is to convince you to repent and to turn back to God and to turn from sin, it's worth every last breath I got. Those are great. You get this silence on the other end of the phone, man. It's like, how do you answer that? And then I start like, I start going... No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. <laughs> if he doesn't repent next time I talk to him, I'm going to do that. <laughs> Just thought of it right now. I'm going to write it down. But uh, see, you know, that, that's the problem. Is that their hearts were, were slow to believe what God had said. And now notice, you know, Jesus' interpretation of what was going on. In verse 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Man, I'll tell you what. That is one Bible study that I would have loved to have been at. The word of God in human flesh explaining the word of God and going through all the Old Testament concerning everything that focused on him. Wouldn't that, oh man, I mean the word explain is the root word that we get for hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible interpretation. And so, you know what, this is one Bible study that was led by Jesus, that there would be no wrong interpretations of any chosen passages. They would be perfect and they would be clearly explained. And what was it that, they, that he explained? That all of scripture focuses on Jesus. All of Scripture focuses on Jesus. Turn back, to, or turn ahead to the Gospel of John. Look at John chapter 5. Now, I know this isn't in the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. I'll get to some of the other things we're talking about in a second. But in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And notice this, and it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He said, you search the scriptures looking for eternal life. And all of the word of God bears witness of me. All of scripture. In Acts chapter 8, we see the same thing. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 26. When we go through this, you would look at them and see that everything in the Bible, if you remember Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, he was reading the book of Isaiah, and he came running up next to him, and he said, what are you reading? He said, I don't know what I'm reading. Who is he writing about? Is he writing about himself, or is he writing about someone else? And he got in, and he began to explain that, you know what? He's writing about Jesus, and he preached Jesus to him. All of the Old Testament preaches Jesus. And can you imagine when he sat there as they were walking along, and we're not told how long this walk took, but I can imagine the excitement and enthusiasm of these two disciples when Jesus started just randomly going through the Old Testament and saying, hey, in the book of Genesis, I'm the seed of the woman. In the book of Exodus, I'm the Passover lamb. And let let me tell you how I fulfilled that, that I died at three o'clock in the afternoon at the same time the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple. And for generations, God had been preparing his people to recognize and understand the sacrifice that Jesus would make. 
In Leviticus, I'm that atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, I'm the bronze serpent that was told that Moses, if you would hold up the serpent and all men would look upon it, that they would be delivered from the curse of the snake bite. Well, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. I'm He. In Deuteronomy, I'm the promised prophet. In Joshua, I'm the captain of the Lord's host. In Judges, I'm the deliverer. In Ruth, I'm that kinsman redeemer. In the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, I'm the promised king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm the one who restores the nation. And in Esther, I'm the great advocate. In Job, I'm his redeemer. And in Psalms, I'm the all in all. And in Proverbs, I'm the pattern that's set forth for life. In Ecclesiastes, I'm the goal in which everything focuses on. In the Song of Solomon, I am the beloved. And he would go through each of those passages. And as he was going through that, they would only begin to scratch the surface. And we're not told how long this walk took, how slowly they walked or whatever. But this study took them to the outskirts of the village. And before we look at the final truth from this passage, address one question. And that is this. Why did Jesus prevent these two from immediately recognizing him? I believe it is because he wanted their faith and their trust and their hope in him to be founded upon the word of God and not on personal experience alone. And that is so critical in our culture. I believe that Jesus prevented them from seeing who he was until they saw from scripture that he was and is the promised one of God. And that their relationship with him would be founded on the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and not based on only the experience of seeing a risen savior but the experience of seeing a risen savior coupled with the promise of God and God's word cemented the deal once and for all of eternity. Too many of, our, too many of us look at our relationship with God based on experience. And I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you, I want to do everything that I can to help us understand that our relationship with God must be founded upon the truth of God's word and not on our experiences alone. And the reason I say that is this, whether God heals me of cancer or not, it does not change my faith and my trust, and my hope in him. Job said, even if God, you choose to slay me, I will trust in you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were led into the fiery furnace, they were asked this question, can your God deliver you from this fiery furnace? And the question is not even worth being asked or answered, but it is a no-brainer. And it's like, you mean the God who holds the universe together, can he deliver me from a little bit of fire in a furnace? Come on, cut me a break. Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel, can your God deliver you from the, li- from the mouths of lions? Oh, come on. That, 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 that's a silly question. Of course he can. But the point of that is this. But even if he chooses not to, I will still trust in him. I will still have faith in him. Because my faith is founded upon the word of God, the promises of God that are revealed, and the character of God that I find in his word, and not based on my individual experience. 
And your faith has got to be resting upon the word of God and not in your experiences alone because oftentimes God's will for us is not our will for ourselves. And if it's based on God, you know what? I'll trust you. Heal me from cancer and then I'll trust you. That's nonsense. God, I'll trust you no matter what you do because you're trustworthy. Because your word clearly teaches that you're a good God. Because the Bible teaches that you gave me your only begotten son. So that when I believed in him, I would not perish but have everlasting life. And in him, I have eternal life. You know what? It isn't a matter of my experience with God. It's a matter of what he has to say and whether we will be slow of heart to believe the word of God. Folks, our faith rests upon the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Is your faith and trust in God based on your experiences alone or are they based on the solid foundation of, the, of what God says in his word? I would pray that your trust in God would shift from experiences and emotions to the solid rock of God's word, which will never let you down. I believe Jesus did not immediately allow himself to be recognized until he walked these two through scripture so that their faith was based on what God had said and not just their experience. See, Their relationship was based on the word of God. Back to Luke chapter 24. And Jesus drew these two into a conversation with an open-ended question. And I like this because notice this. You know, I didn't touch upon it when we were right at it. But in verse 19, you know, they were saying, are you you the only one that doesn't know what's going on around here? Now think of the irony of that. (laughs) You know, Jesus lived through all of it, died, was buried, raised from the dead. And they were asking him, Don't you know what's going on? And in a very gracious, loving way, he said, what things? And he drew them into a further spiritual conversation. And there's an application there for all of us. And that is this, wanting to reach others with the gospel, we would be wise to learn from Jesus. And that is this, to ask questions that encourage others to talk. Instead of being in a big hurry to jam them with what we believe, ask questions that will draw out from them the things that they are struggling with, the things that they are thinking about, the things that they're looking for answers for. I mean, there's no sense coming from, you know, left field and trying to explain something to somebody whose point of reference might be right field. And it's like, okay, what what are you struggling with? Do you believe the Bible? Why don't you believe the Bible? You know, what are some of the things that you wrestle with? Oh, there's contradictions? Like, what kind of contradictions? And you just keep asking the questions and allow them to keep answering them until you get a better understanding of where they are spiritually. And then once you get an understanding of that, then do what Jesus did. 
then go back and take them into the Word of God and use God's Word coupled with the Holy Spirit and God will convict them of the areas of life that He wants to convict them, reach them where they are, and His Spirit is the only one that can change hearts. And so we'll do what Jesus did. Ask questions, draw people into conversation, and then take them to the Word of God and show them from Scripture what it is that God has to say and allow God to do all of the work that God does. You know, we can't save anybody. We can't even persuade anybody. We can't even convince anybody. And if we can convince somebody to pray a prayer to sign up for something, usually, you know what? It's not because God's moved in their heart. It's because we've sold them on something like we sell people on everything else. And you know what? And it's not, it's not eternal. Only God can change the human heart. You've got to be born again by the will of God, not by human effort. And all that God wants us to do is be testi- you know, to testify of what God's done in our life and what he can do in their life by just answering whatever questions there are. Now, notice this in closing. The experience with Jesus at their home opened their eyes. And in verse 28, as they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go further... They urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting evening. The day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. So as they're going into town, Jesus acted as if he would keep on going. And now they're in the midst of this Bible study, and this is every pastor teacher's dream. (laughs) What is that? You're not going to stop, are you? You're not stopping now. Well, you're not. Where are you going? You're quitting. What? Oh, 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 look. No, no, we all know better than that. Because, you know, they were so engrossed in this conversation and this truth and this, and this uh, unraveling of Scripture that it was like, man, you know what? This can't end. Why don't you come in and we can continue with what we're doing? Isn't that great? When was the last time that you were in the middle of a Bible study that you were drawn so deep into uh, further truth that it was like, you know what? The rest of the world can just wait right now because I'm in the best place I've ever been. Most of us are all like, okay, give me 20 minutes of God and then I'm out of here, got stuff to do. But they weren't. They were so hungry for spiritual things. They were like, wait, wait, don't stop. Come on in. Can you imagine inviting a preacher into your house? Well, when will you ever get away from the sermon? You know, but that's what they wanted. They wanted more. And you know what else I noticed too is often is the case, Jesus waited for the invitation and he didn't force himself on them. And he doesn't force himself on us today. For those who are invited, God comes in and he shares the deeper things of life. For those who have no time for him, then you know what? It's our loss, not his, because he already knows all those things. And the event that led to their eyes being open is amazing to me, because notice in verse 30, it came about when he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it, and breaking it, he began to give it to them. They were just having dinner together. And there was something about the way he broke the bread, something about the way he blessed it. Maybe it reminded them of the feeding of the multitudes. Maybe when he started to pass the bread out, they saw the wounds in his, in his wrists. But whatever it was, at that moment, Jesus said, it's time for you to see me for who I am. 
and they recognized him. And as soon as uh, they recognized him, he disappeared. And the effect on their life is just mind-boggling. Because notice this. And they said to one another, and here's the question of the day. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Isn't that the way God is? Just the spirit of God, that heartburn that you get, where your heart is just burning within, that, you know, it's like God's revealing himself to me. He's teaching me deeper truth. I'm understanding things that I had never understood before. I'm seeing things that I've missed. I've been through this passage over and over again, and now look at what I'm getting. And it's like, man, isn't this the greatest heartburn you could ever have? Forget the little pills. That's a heartburn we should all have every day when we're in the word of God. When was the last time you had that kind of heartburn where God was really speaking to your heart because you're spending quality time with him as he's explaining the scriptures to you? Their lives were transformed. And it starts with a God-given heartburn. But notice this in verse 33. And they arose that very hour. They were so fired up by what had taken place that they went back out at night, traveled the seven miles again back to Jerusalem, and they couldn't wait to share with the 11 and everybody that was with them what they had just learned from being with Jesus. And that's the message of the gospel. Come and see and then go and tell. Come and see the empty tomb. Come and see a risen Savior. And then go and tell the world what you just saw. Go and tell the world what you just experienced. It's still God's great commission for his people today. And at great personal risk, they went back at night to tell the 11 and the others who were there they had seen the risen Savior and told them that Jesus had appeared to Peter. You know, the sinner whose life has been touched and transformed by a risen Savior cannot help but tell others. It's been said that the Christian message is never fully ours until we've shared it with somebody else. In closing, God knows the condition of our hearts. Where there is ice, we must pray that he will melt it. Where there is fire, we must pray that he will stoke and fan it until we reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you have heartburn? If not, why not? You need to spend more time in the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for how the risen Savior transforms lives and how once our life is transformed that we are just compelled to be your witnesses to those around us, to testify and proclaim of the excellencies of you who have called us from darkness to light. God, may we be like these two disciples whose fire within our hearts was stoked in that 
and that fire and that was, was just fanned out to the world around them. We see the rest of the apostles and the disciples who came face to face with the risen Savior and they were not content until they went and they reached their world with the gospel. God, may we become people whose heart burns within us because we are deeply involved in the word of God. And may our transformed lives become evidence and testimony of your goodness to those around us. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And we praise you for what you have done and continue to do and will do as promised in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.